With hindsight, I would probably argue that we were naive. We had, of course, we had an idea what it means to manage capital for external investors. These investors have invested in the product based on certain information provided to them on, on a relationship you have built with them prior to that. Maybe they don't even, they're not caring about what you're doing there because they, they like you and, and know you from, from different kinds of businesses. So this was a totally different thing. And put a lot of pressure on us on different different type of situations which we did not anticipate we haven't really covered all the aspects that would actually change once you start trading external assets how do you know if your trading program is set up with the right models systems or time frames how do you know if the risk parameters you chose are the best How do you go from trading your own capital to suddenly managing external client assets? These are big questions that most if not all new managers have to consider and decide upon. And that's what we're talking about in today's episode of Top Traders Unplug. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome to another episode of Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence and courage you need to invest like or invest with some of the top traders in the world. It is the stories that you never get to hear set out as the most honest and transparent account that I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world, delivered to you via a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Today you're listening to episode 47 and if this is the first episode you've heard, you may want to go back and listen to all the earlier conversations. Before we go any further, let's find out who's on today's show. Hi, I'm Bastian Bolesta, the founder and CEO of Deepfield Capital in Switzerland, and you are listening to Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks for doing that, Bastian. And by the way, if you want to read the full transcript of today's episode, just visit the toptradersunplugged.com website where you can find great details about today's guest. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Bastian, thank you so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much for having me today, Niels. My pleasure. Bastian, as, as I prepared for our conversation today, I found a couple of very different approaches, not just to trading, but also to the company's history and the way it's evolved. The big question on the trading side begin, how do we set the best team of systems and models on an ongoing basis? And the big question that you and your partners also had to deal with is the advantages or disadvantages of managing external client assets. So I think there's some great stories and topics to, uh, to dive in today uh, that I think the audience will appreciate. Um, but before we get to, to your story, I wanted to ask you um, 
a slightly different question, a question that I found that many of these successful guests that I have on the podcast tend to also find a little bit challenging at times, uh, despite it being quite a straightforward question. So it goes something like this. If someone that you don't know comes up to you in a social gathering and, you know, not as a business pitch or situation, and they basically ask you, Bastian, tell me what you do. How do you respond? How do you explain what you do? <laughs> I generally say that um, I run my own financial business together with three friends of mine and that we develop algorithmic trading programs based on our own trading and market experience. Of course, it always depends on the setting, if people are more interested in finance or not. But generally, I start with the um, having your own business part because that's one of the key, key drivers um, for us um, doing what we're doing. Sure, great. Now, let's stay with you for a little while longer. Um, tell me your story, how you got into this business in the first place and uh, perhaps in, you know, in order to put some extra color on, you know, you can go back as far as you like and, and how you were as a, as a young man growing up, perhaps. <laughs> uh, nowadays, nowadays, we basically run um, a systematic asset management company called Deep Field Capital. But how did we get here? Um, I, in terms of my background, um, I, was, I was born in Germany and raised near Frankfurt. So naturally, an interest in finance, um, the financial hub of, of Germany um, um, was was one of the first things to think about when actually living there because you saw the skyscrapers all the time and impressive, impressive stories of people working there. So I was quite interested in finance, but I didn't really know how, um, how to start, what kind of angle, um, what actually um, being in finance actually meant. So uh, when I finished my A-levels, um, I, I decided to, to study um, business administration with a focus on finance at um, Frankfurt School of Finance Management. And uh, that particular university um, was strongly supported by the big financial institutions in Germany, um, where uh, the, they had the idea that when you study there, you can work at the same time. So basically, um, I, I studied at the university, but at the same time, I started to work for Deutsche Bank as well, um, all in all five years, um, beginning in the late 1990s. And um, yeah, spent um, a larger part of my time in the beginning in risk controlling, um, particularly then on market market risk controlling, which was quite exciting. I um, first started in Frankfurt, then I could spend some time in London as well, um, and later on in New York. So this was a really exciting part in terms of working. And on the academic side, um, I, I realized quite fast that uh, whatever you're studying there does not necessarily directly connect what what you have to do on the banking side so sure. and uh, it, it was still it was still quite interesting um the second part i went then to china on a semester abroad um which wasn't very interesting um, um time because a totally different setting um I, I had to study there a little bit um parts in in mandarin as well which i could speak slightly but not as good um so i, I needed friends supporting me translating whatever the slide said it was a merger acquisition course for example and i i, I could follow driven by pictures but it was really interesting and difficult time um but a very exciting environment i would say in terms of the country how fast it was developing and what kind of opportunities were um were available to pretty much everybody uh, venturing there 
And then I came back and this was kind of difficult when you come from this really fast de development environment and you come back to Frankfurt <laughs> and you go back into Deutsche Bank, um, <laughs> being German myself, so I don't want to be too hard on sure. being German. And, but Deutsche Bank is a particular special financial institution, I would say, and um, keeps itself like that as well in comparison to the others. So this was a really difficult transition, basically, coming back from China, going back there. So I finished my degree at the university and I, I um, actually changed the department as well. I worked then in um, relationship management um, uh, for financial institutions in the Middle East, which was a little bit more dynamic, I would say, than sure. the market risk controlling. But all in all, um, I somehow did not feel as passionate um, about being part of a bigger institution as I was before actually going to China. Okay. And I somehow had the idea to, to develop my own business and uh, um, make my own experience, what it means um, to set up a business and um, try, try things out. I'm not being part at this particular time of a large institution. So I quit in 2003 and went to China or back to China. And tried all kinds of different businesses in this um, Wild West environment, sure. I would say. It was really a Wild West environment in the early 2000s in, in, in China. Um, um, I set up, together with a friend, I set up um, a headhunting company um, um, to, to recruit um, talent for financial institutions. So trying to combine my understanding of the financial markets and my experience from back in Frankfurt and somehow... Um, um, use the environment we actually found in, in China to, to, to build up a business. Most of the businesses um, we built up throughout the years there were not as successful, but we learned a lot. Sure. Uh, for, of some of them, we could make some money. This was quite interesting. But then probably the, the biggest change um, in terms of um, my future development um, was when I met my two days partners. Um, two of them were traveling in China in 2005 to visit a friend of mine. Um, they knew each other from university. And uh, so I met these two guys and they were day traders, um, self-funded day traders, actually, not working for any kind of company, but actually um, starting really small, being probably lucky with being at the right time at the right place in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, and and now basically having all this experience and understanding um, about markets and uh, how to make, make money from, from this day-to-day -day, um, encounter with markets sitting 20, 24 hours, five days a week or something like that in front of the Bloomberg screens. Mm -hmm. And this was really exciting for me um, where um, we thought, well, let's, we could do something together. And the idea was to take, to take their trading um, knowledge and understanding and the passion about trading and developing trading ideas and combine it with um, um, my passion for building up businesses, entrepreneurship. And uh, that's basically when we partnered up and started um, um, Isatis, basically, which later developed into Isatis Advisory um, back here in Switzerland. That's probably how the entire thing started. Mm. And um, what could be interesting for the listeners is that so how did we get from these prop trading into actually doing something with external investors? And this was first driven by um, the idea to take trading ideas and somehow um, um, offering investors um, a part of it or basically an opportunity to participate in these ideas. And we first did that by developing um, products, particularly structured notes um, um, for institutional investors here in Switzerland. 
mostly pension funds, um, which were running these large portfolios and were interested in getting exposure to certain trading ideas, but the entire um, organization structure did not really allow for reacting fast to certain market opportunities or fast rising market opportunities. So we structured products which allowed them basically to get these exposures. They, uh, in, they then bought these um, products from banks who issued them. And, and this was a really interesting time because we could take our ideas and actually um, support external investors on their portfolio management with ideas we develop from our prop trading. Do you have an example of that, Bastian? What, what would be an idea from back from that time that uh, you thought actually this could be something an institution would be interested in? Probably, there are probably two dimensions. Um, one dimension is just exposure to something. So um, you can develop nowadays, what is nowadays um, bread and butter business, uh, um, everybody can do it basically. You develop a basket of uh, certain companies, um, let's say, for example, in the water industry, and um, we say water is, is a new big thing. Or actually, we did a lot of products on China as well. China China was not as hot uh, in the early, two, uh, in, in mid 2000s. Um, uh, people, it was not at the focus at the um, of the majority of institutional investors here. So, so we developed a basket of uh, single stocks or indexes um, on, on China. And um, this is probably the first part of such a product. And the second part is that um, you you give it some twist that um, you have mechanisms using different kind of options um, to lock in um, returns, um, to add a capital guarantee as well. Of, of course, always dependent on the issuer. That's something um, we all learned a little bit later in 2008, <laughs> that 100% capital guarantee only, only <laughs> means something if your issuer is still around. Sure. And uh, um, this was this is, this is an easy example. So um, mechanisms to lock in returns, uh, um, exposure to things they could not directly invest, and um, yeah, that's probably one an, an easy example what we did there. Sure, sure. I wanted to. There's two topics that I mentioned, and you've also alluded to it already, and I want to explore them a little bit further before we dive in too deep. The first thing is really that one of your partners really comes from the discretionary trading side. And and I'd like you f to share the story of how you went from the discretionary trading mindset to becoming essentially a systematic trader. That That's not something that many people do. If you start off in one direction, you tend to sort of stay with that. Tell me about how that came about. Mm -hmm. Very interesting question. Um, it's probably the first uh, first starter could be that we, in the beginning, while we were actually venturing into into the systematic space, uh, we ourselves were not thinking um, about it like that. Let's say now we go systematic and we actually move away from our discretionary routes. We first started to develop um, smaller pieces of program. Um, to support our discretionary trading. And these 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 um, programs were basically trading ideas um, put into a systematic um, framework and um, traded automatic uh, on an automated fashion. Uh, this was driven probably by two two, um, two major factors. The first thing, if you do things like that, um, things become more pre precise. Uh, if if the heat hits the market, 
and uh, um, a lot of things are going on. If you do it automatically on an automated fashion, uh, you take away the emotional aspects of trading. There are certain trades where emotional aspects might be helpful for you, but many, many trades are actually much better executed if you take the ideas you had once you were not under stress and you somehow um, put them into a, um, um, a strict framework, which is then automa automated, uh, uh, automatically executed by a program. And this was one factor why we started doing that, because it uh, supported us on the discretionary and made things much better in terms of execution particularly. The, the ideas were still the same, but execution became more precise, um, taking away the emotional aspect. And the second thing is you can do much more at the same time. If you are um, a small team, um, a human being in front of the Bloomberg terminal or the trade station can only follow certain, a certain number of um, trading ideas. And if you start um, to do it in a more systematic, automated fashion, you can actually do more things at the same time. So these were probably the drivers why we started to explore that particular field. Maybe a different, a different um, um, additional, additional driver could be that um, Ralph, who was basically trading on the discretionary side, and Heiko, um, who was... Um, in the early days, also discretionary trader, but always very chart uh, analysis driven, um, had a very um, interesting exchange over the years and uh, um, developed the idea of working um, closer together. And uh, Ralph was the guy basically first looking for um, the program supporting, supporting us on the discretionary side. And so, so we realized over the time that this is something um, worth spending more time on it it actually increased increased it it was quite beneficial in terms of making money so it was quite profitable um, employing these programs and at the same time it was a very um, exciting and interesting um, um, area we haven't had explored earlier um, but as said in the beginning we did not think about ourselves being discretionary traders and now turning systematic, we basically continued what we were doing the entire time. The only we, we um, exchanged the human being against um, a computer which had to follow through certain rules, which were still defined by a human being, but not when heat hits the market, but actually when you're when you're calm and everything is well thought through. How did your how did Ralph and Heiko how did they initially come up with some of these trading ideas, which you later on managed to, to a large extent, turned uh, fully systematic? But, but what was the or, you know, original thinking, the original idea from trading in the way? Because it sounds to me like, although you say it was discretionary, it sounds to me that they did actually have certain rules, at least, that they were uh, you know, looking at or looking for. Um, or maybe I'm wrong here, but, but tell me a little bit about sort of the just just before we jump into the systematic side of things, um, how, how that initial side uh, from the trading aspect uh, looked like? Yeah, that's a very fair question. It probably um, goes down to the uh, terminology, what is discretionary and what is systematic. Mm. Um, of course, every single trader follows certain kind of rules. Uh, there are hardly any people just waking up in the morning, turning on the Bloomberg and saying, oh, that's that's a hot buy. And I don't know why, but I just think it. it's it's <laughs> it's these uh, feeling you have that you should do something. It's probably not the main driver why you're actually acting on the market. So everybody has certain kind of rules. Um, I think the major difference between a discretionary trader and a systematic trader is that um, the discretionary trader can always overrule his rules. Right. 
So he, he actually thinks, well, that's how I want to do it. It's well thought through. And then the, he sits in front of the screens. There's a lot of action in the market. And he, I wouldn't say he gets second so doubts or second thoughts. It's more like, oh, no, that's not the right point. I wait a little bit. Or if, particularly on the losing side, oh, no, 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 this will come back. <laughs> you, you have this strong exit signal based on your rules, but you just don't follow it through. Sure. In some cases, these guts feeling make people successful. Mm. Uh, but I would probably argue in the majority of cases um, – um, it's a problem for them. So if you turn systematic, that probably means in contrast to the discretionary part that you have to follow through whatever you sought through in the beginning because um, it's probably done by computer or um, you outsource it to a different trader who is just supposed to hit the button if a, green go, if a light goes red or green. But he, the, the trader itself doesn't really know why it's going red and green. And he should not think about it. He should just execute whatever the signal says. And that's probably the difference between the discretionary part and the systematic part. And I would, I would agree that, of course, um, the ideas which are now reflected in um, trading in our singularity program, they have always been part of the thinking um, um, of, of the entire team, but not um, traded in such an automated fashion, I would say. Sure, sure, absolutely. Before we get to the next question, I wanted to ask uh, you uh, in terms of sort of the initial uh, transition, I just want to ask you kind of a, a slightly personal question. You are busy building, running deep field capital. Mm -hmm. um, what do you do when you're not busy building and running deep field capital? What, what, do, you, what do you like to do when you're not in the office? Thinking about deep field capital. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, uh, um, family. Um, I have a lovely family. I have two children. I'm two and a half years old and um, six months. Um, this takes the major part uh, of, of my time uh, together with my wife. And um, we live in Switzerland. It's, it's such a beautiful place. I'm, I'm currently looking out of the window and, and, and see the mountains, um, some of them already having snow. So it, you can do so many things out here, um, uh, going mountain biking, hiking. Uh, uh, prior to actually taking external asset uh, um, um, investors' money, I did ice climbing as well and uh, things like that. Rock climbing. We still do rock climbing, but it's safe. Don't don't worry, investors. <laughs> so uh, there's plenty of things to do here. It's a really beautiful place to live together with a family and building up a business as well. And that's that's what what um, I spend most time on. Sure, you alluded to it just now again, and 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 I wanted to try and get into this mindset because this is quite a unique uh, situation in, in, in my view. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the debate that you had internally and everything that you really had to come to term with in terms of pros and cons of managing external capital versus doing what you did initially, which was just to manage your own capital as, as prop traders, essentially. Um, how, how, what was that thought process that you went through uh, in order to, to get to the conclusion where you are now, where you actually do uh, also run external capital? With hindsight, I would probably argue that we were naive. Uh, that's it's really tough um, for us as a team, but 
we had, of course, we had an idea what it means to manage capital for external investors. Uh, we, we had built these relationships with institutional investors here in Switzerland. And I had my experience with institutional investors in the Middle East when still working for Deutsche Bank. So we knew what it actually means to deal with investors. But the large difference to our experiences in the past and what basically happened once we actually accepted um, external assets for trading in the Singularity program is that now you're actually actively managing money. The structured products we developed, these were one-time products. They were not actively managed. You did something good or you didn't something good, but you you couldn't do anything about it. The only thing the investor could sell it um, with a loss or he was really happy because it was a successful trading idea put into a product. Um, But if you you actually accept assets and you're basically trading it, even when a program is doing on a single day, you're still responsible for whatever is happening. And these investors have, have invested in the product based on certain information provided to them on, on a relationship you have built with them prior to that. Maybe they don't even, they're not caring about what you're doing there um, because they, they liked you and, and, know, and know you from, from different kinds of businesses. So this was a totally different thing and uh, put a lot of pressure on us um, on different, different type of situations which we did not anticipate when we actually sat down and said, well, the Singularity program, we started to trading at Life in July 2010 and it was quite successful. And we said, well, it's successful. Um, it has uh, capacity. We don't see any issues that they, we run into um, um, limitations on the capacity side um, until much, much more assets under management. And uh, so why don't we ju- take additional um, assets from external investors? Uh, we had so good experiences with working with external people in the past. Why not do that as well on the actually active asset management side? And uh, so we started the Singularity Fund one year later in September 2011, but we, we haven't really covered all the aspects that would actually change once you start trading external assets. Can you give me an example of how managing external capital challenged the way you think about what is best from a trading point of view? In terms of that, you basically um, have to spend additional time. You can you cannot just spend time on research and and uh, further developing your program, but you have to spend more time on operational aspects as well and on um, um, constant communication. Is that is that the direction you want to have to? With yeah, this but question? also in a sense that you know sometimes you know as a trader that this is the best way or this is the right way to trade. But sometimes you have to make commercial, uh, perhaps, decisions where, you know, it could be about, you know, I I imagine that some people have a certain risk tolerance themselves and they um, know that the program is solid and they trade it like this. And then you see, you start taking external capital and, and then you find out, well, actually, maybe investors don't have that risk tolerance. And so I can't trade it this way. There are some examples out there in, in our industry where, some firms who have been incredibly successful run with very high volatility. But that's simply because they do know that over time it is the right thing to do. But at the same time, it may be very hard for them to raise assets because not everyone is willing to have that kind of volatility. So it's more the, the sort of that side of things as well that, that I 
thought would be interesting to hear your your thoughts about. Mm-hmm. Probably in the beginning there wasn't uh, such an issue in in terms of um, this this aspect because we 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 did not sit, sit down and decided to become an asset manager. Now, at the center of our approach used to be and still is the proprietary trading. So basically putting our own assets at risk, um, and this goes for, for testing new trading ideas and the development of new trading ideas, as well as the actual trading. And around this, um, let's call it traders approach, we have built um, institutional setup to enable external investors to invest alongside us into our systematic strategies. And this aspect of alongside us was um, probably one reason why we actually started the external asset management business as well, because we did not see it as um, the center point of what we're doing, but actually it's something we attach to our um, 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 prop trading, so to say. This was a really good idea and it still drives us the majority of the time. However, once you start taking external assets, you, you you feel much more responsible as well. Um, um, and 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 you you feel new new pressures you haven't really experienced before, particularly yeah. in in times when it's getting difficult, when you have drawdowns. If you lose money, and it's your own money, it's your own problem. If it's the team's money, it's the team's problem, and we have to discuss it in the team. For example, if 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 um, we did a cal- if the calculation was wrong, or we had an operational hiccup, um, the program was down for for half an hour or something like that. But fortunately, it doesn't happen. But um, it, particularly in the early days when we started to explore in 2009 and 10, there was still the operational side was um, um, not as institutionalized as today. Sure. But it didn't really matter so much because we knew that it's our problem. If you're really unlucky and you cannot trade on a particular particular day which which would have turned into the best trading day of your life or of, of the year, it's your problem. But once you have external investors' money, it's a totally different game because they will ask you, why didn't you trade yesterday? We got the um, broker statements and I can't see any trades or much less trades than normally. What happened basically? And didn't you miss some of the performance? And this is, this is totally different because Actually, if something like that happens, you can always work on it and explain. Um, everybody tries his best to have um, the best operational setup and everything. And we're really lucky that we are working with good service providers and our setup today is very solid. But before something like that happens, you always feel, you, you already feel pressure. You're afraid that something like that might happen. Or in a drawdown, you're afraid that the drawdown will actually continue. Whereas as... Uh, a prop trader or just trading your own money, you are not as afraid because you believe in your system. You constantly do um, reconciliation checks that if is the system doing what it's supposed to do and if it's continuing in a drawdown and you continue to lose money um, over a certain period of time and you're happy with it because it's doing what it's supposed to do, that's about it, and you continue. Fo- you can continue focusing on um, new research, uh, or just go outside hiking. But if 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 this happens with external assets, um, you are much deeper in communication with investors. They actually start questioning 
if what you're doing is actually correct or if you could actually change it a little bit, it would be much better. Um, if the risk is not too high, things like that. And this is this is totally different. And I would say overwhelm the team, particularly in the beginning. Um, we have we have learned to deal with that. Um, we had our, our larger drawdown um, um, in autumn last year and uh, learned a lot about that and um, did some mistakes back there as well. And um, I think we are much, much stronger now um, and are much more relaxed as well. Uh, uh, you can probably argue that as an investor, you have to be careful in selecting your managers in terms of what how your portfolio look like, but also with what kind of managers you want to um, um, work and invest. And I would argue that exactly the same goes for a manager, that the manager actually has to be very careful about his investors as well. Um, we were very um, hungry in the beginning and accepted all kinds of different assets. Um, if, if you want to grow your fund, um, somebody comes by and says, it sounds really interesting what you're doing and you have such a great performance, uh, you would probably accept his 100,000, 200,000, 500,000 euros because it will bring your fund further. But with this particular um, type of investor, I probably would call it uh, it's, it's uh, fast money or sure. investors chasing past returns. You have to be really lucky in terms of timing. Um, they're good people. And it's, it's a valid point that you look at investors, uh, at managers, and if they do performance, you want, you want to have a share of it. It's perfectly fine. But as from the manager perspective, you have to be aware that this money will disappear as fast as it just appeared. And you have to be lucky in terms of timing because if um, you are at the beginning of a business cycle where the market environment plays into your favors – then it's perfectly fine because this particular investor will make money. Um, he will see one all-time high after another all-time high. And maybe he will have made enough money once you're actually going in a drawdown um, period, which will happen over the entire business cycle. You will have these periods. And maybe he will even stick with you. But if this particular investor is investing in a rough time or just in a transition period where markets get more and more difficult for you, and you as a manager, you know that's a certain period you have to navigate these rough waters, but they most likely will turn into something which is profitable again for you, um, um, taken that your models are not broken or um, um, you will not come up with new ideas in case um, the environment continues uh, in that fashion. Um, then this particular investor will leave you again and um, your fund will get smaller again. And this can be really, really tricky because uh, you're first so happy that you have rising, um, raising, um, rising assets and then you're so disappointed that you're losing it again. And uh, this has been uh, an interesting and important learning, but probably uh, I, I, I would not argue that I wouldn't do it again. Um, if you're a young manager and sure. uh, you set up your own business, I would still probably still go for the money. But being aware um, of these different types of investors is a really important thing. Sure. I mean, the reality is, and I think you make some very important and, and some great points, uh, Bastian. And, and at the end of the day, uh, I think it's important to realize that this is the way the journey is. There's, there's no, uh, you don't start out as a new manager and suddenly you get only long-term institutional uh, clients who will never redeem and, and, and so on and so forth. You have to take what what, what comes along. Uh, and the other thing I think is very important is to just, you know, be open about the fact that, you know, we're not perfect. I mean, uh, and, and I, not even the big companies today are perfect. You may not, we may not see the, the flaws, 
but but they're there i mean and we are all human beings we all you know take our trousers on in the morning the same way and and so you know i think that that's very important i wanted to just before we jump into sort of the more uh, business and 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 strategy uh, sections i just wanted to have sort of a fresh perspective from your point of view because many of the guests that i've had on and and uh, been very privileged to have on have 20 30 40 years of experience in sort of the hedge fund or managed futures industry and that obviously gives them a certain perspective as to how they look at the industry in your case you're coming from it you know still relatively new um, but you've actually ventured into this area at a quite important time um, you know just after 2008 and and so on and so forth how do you how does this kind of fresh perspective without all the back history from the 90s and and so on and so forth how do you look at the industry today and 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 all it's been through in the last couple of years uh, how do how do you see it that's a good question because in the beginning we didn't know much about the industry. As I said earlier, we were not aware that we were actually venturing into the systematic space or didn't perceive ourselves as actually doing that. Sure. Once we actually were in the systematic space and have, uh, providing a product as well, the Singularity Program, we didn't, we didn't really know how, how to describe it. So um, what are we doing here? So what we had to do is actually to reach out to different managers, um, to go to different, uh, all kinds of different fairs, um, listen to all kinds of different presentations in order to get an understanding how are the big guys in the industry actually talking about their products? How do they perceive the current status of the industry? And of course, we developed an understanding that um, managed futures programs, particularly trend-following programs, were going through a really rough period, uh, that they had um, strong difficulties in the two, uh, after the post-2008-2009 uh, environment. But we ourselves... We didn't really face these struggles. Um, parts of our programs were already trading in the 2008 environment. And um, of course, uh, the entire program is basically built on, on data sets, including 2008 as well. And um, referring to um, your question regarding the 80s or the 90s, uh, we, didn't, we don't actually look as far in terms of data in terms of um, how the program is actually working, because we are only um, trading futures. Um, so we are uh, dependent on highly liquid electronical markets. And if you look at the liquidity, um, how liquidity has evolved over time in, in the majority of futures, you can't really go much beyond um, um, the 2000s. Yeah? Actually, for the majority of um, futures we are trading, liquidity um, um, became sufficient for the way we are trading, I would say, in 2002, 2003, in some cases, even four and five. So the equity side, for example, S&P probably earlier, but if you think about grains, for example, or copper, certainly later. So we, we from, from this natural setting, what we were doing there, we were not looking much further than the, what actually what, what was going on um, before 2000. But now actually um, going out and... Um, talking to all these different players in the industry, we understood that the industry was going to, through some kind of crisis and um, uh, experienced a lot of money outflows. And uh, the interesting thing is I was just talking about um, a certain type of investors chasing um, past returns sure. um, and was referring to um, smaller tickets like uh, 500K or 100K or something like that. But actually, I would argue that the industry um, experienced that on a much larger scale as well. Sure. Um, managed futures 
were so successful in the 2008 environment. So basically, when crisis hit the market, they could actually show and play to their strengths. And what happened afterwards, they got a lot of money. A lot of investors, actually institutional and professional investors, um, which should know better, um, um, not necessarily just chasing the returns, um, actually invested into the space and were quite disappointed over the last couple of years when the space did not deliver. And uh, for us, being a really young um, 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 and uh, fast developing emerging manager, um, I would say we, we observed the entire scene, but we were not as affected um, by the struggles um, the majority of players went through. And if you look, if you look at our overall development, we were somehow able um, to make decent amounts of money, so deliver good performance um, with the program, even that difficult environment, but could not escape the deteriorating effects of, of a more and more difficult market. So it became even more difficult for us. But um, I would say we were more like a free spirit in that um, slightly um, darkened and sad environment um, um, the space was facing over the last couple of years. Now let's jump to the first uh, topic relating more to, to sort of your uh, your business today. Uh, we've heard the story and, um, you know, as a small manager, we don't need to spend too much time on how you've structured your infrastructure and so on and so forth, but do feel free to, to share some of that. Um, but what I'm more interested in is actually more sort of the, the mindset behind the journey, meaning, you know, as you have to build an organization and have to build a business how do you decide where to allocate new resources and what to add to your organization first and how do you balance the the uh, the risk between adding people too soon before the assets come and adding them too late because people might not invest with you because there's only you know x number of people how do you I think a lot of people will really appreciate to understand a real-life, real-time example of how do you build a successful asset management company from scratch. Mm -hmm. Probably for us, the starting point, as said earlier, was not necessarily let's sit down and build a business. We already had our trading business going on and the cornerstone of what we were doing back there was that we were actually doing it being friends. So I sometimes refer to it um, family style. Yeah? So we did it family style. And, um, and um, we, I, we sometimes still say we want to keep it family style, which puts some limits um, in terms of how many people you want to hire. Um, so if we incorporate new people in the team, there's generally always a thought that can these people stay with us for longer? And um, um, we're not necessarily just looking for their talent and their new ideas they're bringing in, but also their personality. And if, if you can actually imagine spending time with them um, on a remote island yeah, for, for more than an hour. And considering that work takes a major part of your time, I would say life is way too short to work with people you don't like. And so that, that is one major driver or let's say not the driver, it's a, it's a corner, the corner um, of, um, of 
cornerstone of the business or the major pillar of the business. And then, then you have to, in our case, you have to look at what the Singularity program is actually doing. It's, it's, a, it's really fast, highly reactive program. So we have a lot of trading that puts a lot of emphasis on building up um, a top institutionalized infrastructure once you start accepting external assets, particularly if you want to attract institutional assets. So um, we were basically forced right from the beginning when we said we open it up for external investors that we have to spend a significant amount of resources and time on building up this operational site in terms of um, um, uh, having top-tier brokers, in terms of uh, having um, all these different recovery aspects of business, different server places, um, uh, doing it in the virtual space, so basically um, using you know, using cloud computing for the servers, but also for the calculations. So this was this was a, a major. Um, the, the important thing we had to focus on right from the beginning, because if you cannot deliver that, particularly when you are trading so much, um, uh, you will not have, you will not attract um, larger larger assets, particularly institutional assets. So a lot of resources on that. This was kind of. Um, um, up to some part unexpected from the team as well because it took away some 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 resources um, we normally would spend on creating new ideas but fortunately fortunately we we started to realize that quite quite fast and um, started to outsource uh, many many of the things um, um, probably larger larger investors would do internally so um, um, middle and back office functions for example have been outsourced to um, a top service provider in the industry um, uh, so we we get the data and we do the reconciliation inside, but they basically gather all the data. Um, um, everything has been automated on our side in terms of the actual trading and in terms of um, um, how the reporting systems are working. So if you if you start using um, very good service providers, um, you can actually keep it family style, and uh, it takes a while basically to build up these relationships and until everything's running smoothly. But once it is in place. Um, you have so much more time and resources spending spending on your program, and as we are trading fully automated, um, we don't have we don't have to spend much time and um, looking after the program in terms of execution. So um, I would say the major resources went into operations and um, to continue our research, and this is. Uh, still the case, uh, we probably see um, um, more and more resources on, on research again, um, particularly in the last 18 months, because the operational setup is pretty much pretty much um, um, finalized. We just um, uh, onboarded another uh, top-tier brokerage um, relationship in order to be a bit more flexible um, what we can offer to our external investors. But we are really happy with the service providers we already have on board for a couple of years. So I would say if you're a small manager and you, you, you start to think about what can be outsourced, um, what do I necessarily really have to do in-house, and what kind of resources can I use in order to do my work in-house, um, then you can actually keep it family style, but um, grow substantially in assets. Appreciate that. Um... One question, though, and, and it's probably to deal more with perception than reality, and that is, how do you conv convince a potential investor that you're able to compete and deliver the same operational excellence than a firm with 50 people do? Because 
at the end of the day, that's a major challenge, I think, when it comes to attracting these uh, investors because, uh, frankly, a lot of the people um, who have to make the decision about allocating to a small manager probably feel some pressure uh, in terms of uh, the way they look at their due diligence um, and, and, and they would feel more comfortable with a bigger firm even though there may not be any uh, factual difference in terms of uh, operational excellence. How have you gone about convincing people that you know it is just as good to go with you than it is to go with a much bigger firm? It somehow um, goes back to what I just said um, earlier that if you try to build up everything yourself, you're certainly under much more pressure in terms of um, um, are they really um, able to do that and keep the high quality. So you really have to think about what do you want to keep in-house and what can you actually outsource to uh, top-tier service providers. Because the top-tier service provider aspect actually helps investors to tick a box particularly on the operational side. So all our trading programs are developed in-house. So the, the trading side, as well as the, um, the research side, um, the backtesting side, this is all um, in-house developed software. And there basically, um, people of course have to trust us that we know what we're doing there and um, that we have the resources to keep that, keep that up to date and uh, progress over time as well. Uh, but in the different as the additional aspects of middle and, middle and back office functions, uh, reporting things, um, these can be outsourced to uh, nowadays. It, it, it did not work probably, um, or the, the offering was not there probably 10, 15 years ago because there was no offering to smaller managers because things were way too expensive. But nowadays, even top tier service providers have offerings for smaller managers because you don't need the big, big, big operational package by one of these top tiers. You can just take part of it and then you build up over time. If you need an additional reporting function, you can get this additional reporting function. If you need a regulatory reporting function, they can offer it to you. It always takes time to implement these things. But uh, I think that is a really important thing, helping investors to trust you on these aspects of the operational side of the business and not being afraid that you are small managers in comparison um, to the larger ones, sure. I would say. I just had one more question. I was just curious now that we we're talking about sort of the, the challengings of, of building something up. What about regulation? I mean, regulation has changed a lot in, in even, even since you started um, and certainly hasn't made it easier f to be small, uh, in, in my view, what do you think about what's happening from a regulatory point of view and and how does that affect your business? It's a, yeah, that's a really, really important aspect of the business nowadays. And you're perfectly right. It changed dramatically. Um, we probably were lucky that we were just fast enough to develop in a less regulated environment where we could explore into all kinds of different directions, getting understanding what do we actually want to do. And now are basically well prepared in order to face these changing regulation. If you are a manager and you sit down, or if you actually want to become a manager and you have a trading idea or a program and you want to start your business today, this is def definitely more difficult because um, for us having a running business, spending time on developing an understanding 
what kind of new regulations are actually coming up? For example, thinking about the AIFMD in, in, in Europe or the equivalent in in Switzerland or all these different changes in the US as well, it takes so much time to get an understanding and you not necessarily have the financial resources in order to actually have external consultants doing all aspects of that for you. So this this can actually be overwhelming for somebody starting a new business. And in our case, it it, it, is, it has basically resulted um, uh, to the situation that we are most dominantly focusing on, on the U.S. as um, a market. And our entire regulation efforts in further expanding our business um, currently focus on the U.S. While we're actually sitting in Switzerland, we, we do not actively um, approach um, Swiss um, investors or European continental investors. We have all these existing relationships. This is all fine. And um, there is additional potential for us to, to grow with these relationships. But uh, in terms of regulatory environment, it has become much more difficult um, for a, a new manager, but also for a manager of our size at the moment, because you always have to face the question, um, do you want to be AFMD regulated or not? Um, um, this will take away a lot of time for you, probably for the next, next six or 12 months, if you go down this road and you need um, sufficient assets as well in order to pay for the running costs. And I'm not quite sure I, if that really helps um, the end investor here in Europe. I, I understand that um, people who develop these regulation had the, probably the best intentions in mind <laughs> um, to protect investors. Yeah, that is, that is one of the key reasons, um, at least um, what you can read and hear about. It is what what is actually happening is basically uh, it, it's getting really difficult for smaller managers um, to actually offer their investment ideas um, um, to investors out there. And I'm not just talking retail investors; it's, it's even that institutional investors are limited in um, the options they have when investing based on these new regulations because they have they have to tick the box if they invest into somebody who is not regulated with a certain standard and something goes wrong, they face career risk. If they are right, nobody will come around and say, well, you did a really good choice. You, 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 you picked a really good manager despite um, um, him um, not being regulated to standard A, but just to standard B. So there's a big career risk for decision makers on the institutional side. So they most likely will not take this risk. Um, and they say, no, you really will. And I think that this, I'm, I'm strongly believe that this regulation um, will probably limit the ability um, of the European alternative investment space to develop new trading ideas and bring them to the market. Mm. Because I would argue that not necessarily just the really big um, managers um, come up with new ideas. Of course, they have all these large um, resources hundreds of PhDs developing certain things. And they have really interesting products and have been around for such a long time and I have a lot of respect for what they're doing. But I, I would say that a lot of interesting ideas are coming from smaller managers as well. Some of them fail, others are successful. And if you take away the opportunity for them to grow because investors provide them with capital, being aware of the risk of providing capital to a smaller managers, please people, yeah, the investors, not everybody has to protect, be protected. Yeah? But if you have a regulation that, like that, it forces investors to act in a certain way and it limits the ability of the space here in Europe to develop. 
And uh, I think that the U.S. is going in a totally different direction. Uh, I think the business environment there becomes more interesting. And there's certain um, other geographical um, areas, for example, Asia, where you see um, a growing community, particularly in our uh, managed future space. So I think um, this will be difficult for Europe um, to keep that edge that might have had over the last um, um, 10 years. Sure. No, I, I, that, absolutely. I mean, I think you, I think you said it very diplomatically. Um, <laughs> another way of saying it is, of course, that it's interesting that many investors are not allowed to invest in a very diversified portfolio of markets with high level of risk controls and so on and so forth. Yet, on the other hand, they're allowed to go out and invest all their money in Enron and they could, or in any other stock for that matter, which they could lose overnight. So, I mean, regulation certainly is uh, an interesting uh, factor in, in all of this. But anyway, let's shift gear and, and talk about something which is, uh, I think, really important when you look at any manager. And that's the track record of a, of a strategy, because as we know, uh, many strategies start out in one way, they build a long track record, um, but over time it evolves. And therefore, it can be very difficult for any investor to look at a track record and get a meaningful um, idea of what performance risk might actually look like going forward. And of course, we know that we always have to say past performance is not indicative of future results, which is very true. But looking at your track record, how has that how would you say people should read it? Are there any things along the, the way since 2010 when you started where you said, yeah, you know, this was kind of one period of what we did. We then evolved a little bit into this. And how would, how would you advise people to read your track record when they look at it? Mm -hmm. Particularly when referring to the chasing past return aspect of what we discussed earlier. Uh, I think there are two dimensions. The first dimension is has the manager done something differently over time? Has the program evolved um, into a certain direction? Um, and the second dimension is, have the markets evolved? Has the market environment be the same the entire time? Because of course, the results are dependent on a market environment as well. And if you want to look at both dimensions, you have to take a lot of time particularly when sitting down with a manager, uh, manager to get an understanding. So what are you actually doing? How does this result? Or what kind of results do I expect in a certain market environment? Then actually refer back, okay, 2010 was such a market environment, 2011, 2012, 2013. This has changed. This is one aspect why your P&A went up or down in certain periods. And at the same time, they have to cross-check, have you done, done anything differently? And I would argue that um, the managed future space, if you work on the systematic side, you constantly work um, on the research side to cross-check if your earlier assumptions are correct, if you have done something uh, wrong, um, if everything's working in line. And you should not only do that um, if you are in, in a drawdown, but you should constantly check. Also, when you have higher than expected returns, you better make sure um, that you understand why this actually has happened. And uh, at the same time, um, you, you, basically, you basically come up with new ideas and you want to introduce these new ideas to the trading program, but make sure that it does not result in uh, what people refer to as style drift. Yeah, because 
if you have invested just chasing returns, they, they are fine if you have returns. But as a manager, you would like to head, I would say, more in the direction that investors have you in their portfolio because you de deliver a certain risk return profile. And these investors are really exciting ones because you can have really deep discussions with them and they stick with you as well when you have a drawdown. And uh, you can learn a lot from these discussions as well. So from from our case, we are most interested in these kind of investors. I would probably call the institutional, professional investors who put together portfolios with you being a part, a building block of their portfolio in the expectation that you deliver something um, and you don't have any style drift there. And so you have to make sure if you come up with new ideas that these new ideas are well thought through, tested from all kinds of different angles in order to... Um, reduce or mitigate the risk that they basically change your risk return profile. But at the same time, you have changing market environments, which could make this picture a bit um, blurry. So uh, you might think that you're still doing the same, but you're not because the market environment changed and it just looks the same or exactly the opposite. Um, um, you are doing the same, but um, the results tell you you're currently not, but it's driven by the market environment and not by the new ideas you actually have. So that's a thin line you have to walk as uh, being a manager by further um, evolving um, um, your program or developing new ideas. And uh, this is something which takes a lot of time when sitting down with um, an investor because uh, they have to have the patient and particularly the interest to develop the understanding in what kind of market environments um, you actually expected to deliver what kind of performance. And if you look at what basically happened in the Singularity program, um, the core of our program has remained the same since July 2010. So the, the idea... Um, how Singularity looks at uh, incoming price data and anal analyzes this price data and generates signals has remained the same. And our strong focus just on uh, trend-following signals, despite not being a trend-follower, but we probably will go into that direction a little bit later in sure. our communication, um, and has remained the same. But and, and we have an aspect where we say, if something is not automated, you should automate it over time. So whenever you have some a manual process in a systematic way, but manual, you should try to automate it to, to, to um, exclude human error and at the same time to um, have uh, the potential of increasing complexity to, to, um, to, to look at a higher number of variations a human being might not be able to cover in that manual process. And there uh, have been two things where we basically automated aspects in our trading program. In 2011, we automated um, our allocation process um, basically from a manual process by our portfolio manager in 2010 um, to an automated um, process where um, the program is putting together the portfolio based on the same rules um, 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 the portfolio manager did it in the past, but this also allowed us an increasing complexity in terms of how you can actually put together the portfolio. And the second thing I would argue is the allocation process in terms of markets. What kind of markets um, do you actually have in your portfolio? And this has been something we had on our research list for quite some time as well, and which has, has been introduced in 2014 where um, now basically uh, the number of markets being in, in your portfolio on a monthly basis 
um, can be higher or lower depending on certain um, um, drivers, market conditions and uh, uh, particular volatility in certain markets. So this, this has been something which was a manual process, so to say, in the past um, and has been automated. But um, yeah, that's, that's, probably, that's probably it in terms of how the program evolved. Now, we're going to jump into the nitty-gritty of the program, of course. And I want to just make the audience... Uh, I just want to make a couple of observations because this is where I think it's really interesting and I, and I very much look forward to, to your explanation. But I think one way of looking at what you do is uh, to, to try and make the distinction between the fact that many... Uh, managers when we research certain things we put together a a model that has certain parameters and we tend to to run that model over a a number of markets uh, and and these things are constant but what you're doing is very different in a sense you're trying to set the team both in terms of models and systems parameters markets every single month so take us all the way from the top and, and and all the way down and explain what the Singularity program really does and what it's all about. Mm-hmm. So basically, uh, today we have the Singularity program, which is a futures trading program. And we have a second program we call Singularity Pure Equity, which is basically taking the Singularity trading philosophy and just employing it to the equity markets. And these are basically our two, two programs, but they are have the same original thought how we look at markets and how we're trading the markets. And Singularity is purely systematic and fully automated. So, and it trades only futures um, across um, liquid future markets, currently up to 23 markets across all asset classes. So that is basically a starting point when when you want to categorize it, so to say. And we have designed it to to deliver, um, we call it a multi-directional alpha stream. So uh, um, basically independently from the direction of whatever market, um, trying to capture different different um, return sources or return drivers and generating um, an alpha in comparison to um, traditional approaches, particularly in the alternative investment space and consequently showing a long, low correlation. And we do that by employing a quantitative analysis of real-time price data. So the interesting part is that while we, I said it earlier, we only employ trend-following strategies, we actually do not show any correlation to the trend-following space. And this was a very um, difficult aspect for us as well when developing a better understanding what we were actually doing when communicating to the investors. Because uh, as we did not sit down and develop a systematic program. In particular, nobody in our team basically um, came from academia um, in terms of systematic um, um, trading or used to work for a a different um, systematic um, asset manager. We haven't had the terminology in order to describe what we were doing. And as we were only trading trend-following signals, we went out to invest and say, well, we have a trend-following program. But um, 
we made money when they didn't make money and we lost money when they made money. So in, uh, no correlation. So we had to learn over the time um, by communicating with investors that while actually using trend following signals, we probably are not a classical trend follower, particularly sure. in the way we're trading. And um, we nowadays um, strongly believe that this idiosyncratic profile is driven by what we refer to as intra-market diversification, which is probably a term um, um, just used by us. And we came up with this term by um, going out to investors. And one day, for example, um, in the really early days, we, we were trading eight markets at the time. Our performance was quite good. And we went, sat down and said, well, we have a trend-following program. We currently trade eight markets. And uh, it, the guy stopped us immediately and said, wait, wait a moment. You're only trading eight markets. You're not diversified. How can you only trade eight markets? Yeah? And uh, this was, was a big question. Why, we are, why are we not diversified? Um, he said, go back home and do your homework, something like that. So we went back home and we said, well, okay, let's do our homework first. We only use trend-following program as signals. We, we deliver performance here, but we, we, he said we should do our homework. So why are we not diversified? What actually, what means diversification? So we looked at different programs and um, I would argue that a classical trend-following program has a smaller number of well-researched and robust um, um, strategies or sure. models and they employ it across um, a large number of markets, as large as possible, 50, 80, 100 markets. Some people actually tell you that they're even trading more markets. And uh, that's probably the aspect this particular investor was referring to when he actually gave us homework. And we said, well, but we are trading eight markets and we actually do not feel that we are not diversified in terms of if you look at our risk and how everything's evolving, we have quite some diversification here. And then we realized that Diversifying across a high number of markets is probably something we could refer to as cross-market diversification, which is certainly an important thing and has been around for a really long time in investment. Everybody knows that if you diversify across different asset class and different markets, there is something in there. And so we looked at it, so what are we actually doing? And we basically, we employ a really high number of strategies or strategy variations in every single market we are trading. So we went, we, when we went to this investor and said, we're trading eight markets, what we missed to tell him is that we are trading eight markets, but we have around 1,000 different variations of strategies being active in these markets while we're actually speaking. So we came up with this terminology, what we refer to as a strategy element, because these are actually not thousands of strategies, but they are variations of strategies. And if you look at singularity nowadays, if you have, for example, um, a portfolio of 10 million, you would probably expect um, 1,500 strategy elements in something in up to 8 to 12 markets, maybe 14 markets. That actually means that every single market trades, let's, let's take 10 it makes calculation easier, sure. uh, has 150 strategy elements. So what does it actually mean? So we have to look at it. What is this, What is a strategy element? And uh, this is a term we came up um, because I said earlier that we developed our trading software and um, testing software all in-house. And if, you, if you're a programmer, um, you have these um, objects which are hard-coded and defined. And, and a strategy element is an object in the programming language. Um, which we, which we, where we define um, certain rules and we actually define it on three different levels. And then you take this object and put it into the trading program and let it trade for the entire month. Okay, so let's, this, let's, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop you there and just try and explain that again. 
we're using sort of a terminology also that that everybody understands this let's, let's make it really basic here you know in terms of what what variations could that be mm -hmm. sure so you have a strategy element and it, it has three layers on the first layer um, we define what kind of trend-following strategy this little fellow is using. So you can think about it as um, individuals, actually. Yeah. Um, thousands of individuals with different characteristics, and they look differently at markets. So first level, trend-following. Um, let's take moving average. Right. And the second level is what we refer to as trading parameters. So um, one trading parameter could be, for example, time. So it's a 150 days average. And then the third level, you have risk parameters, um, a stop loss, and you can calculate stop loss in different ways. So this little fellow gets um, a certain type of stop loss or um, take profit is another thing. So he, he, he does take profit based sure. on certain rules. And this is hard coded. So this little guy will always follow his rules based on these three layers. Exactly. And then, and let's, let's say this is um, uh, the little guy number 50. And now we have his friend number 51, he is also using a moving average. He has also, but he doesn't have 150 days. He has 160 days, but the same stop. Mm -hmm. And then you have number 53, 54, 55. So you have a high number of variations once you start slightly changing um, or giving uh, different values to the uh, three different layers. Yes. So potentially you can create a universe of thousands of combinations of strategy elements. And that's basically what we are doing when we are defining the potentially tradable universe on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then you have a process where you basically systematically select these strategy elements across a given number of markets it's a process which slowly builds up the portfolio framed by um, strong risk criteria. And in the end, you have um, these 1,500 strategy elements, for example, for an account of 10 million. And then these elements trade independently for an entire month. And this is really interesting and important aspect. For example, let's take two little fellows in, um, in, in gold. And... Um, um, gold is trading, something is happening on the market, and, and one strategy element gets a signal uh, to go long. So it buys one gold contract. And actually, um, another gold um, 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 strategy element, two minutes later, gets a signal to go short because it's based on different rules, based on these three different layers. So it's a different um, entry point in, uh, for both of them. Yeah? So there are two different entry points. And we let them trade freely. So the portfolio... Um, is, of course, always a net result of all the positions and uh, actions of these um, strategy elements. And this results in a high reactivity because they all trade independently. They don't look right and left what all the other guys are doing. And um, you do that for an entire month. And that's why we argue that there is an intramarket diversification because uh, these strategy elements, even when being employed in the same market, they try to capture different drivers of return and they do not um, depend on the actions of the others they all do it independently and some of them are successful in that particular months and some of them are not successful and your trading result is basically result of all these inde independent actions of these strategy elements why did you choose one month why not two months or three months why does the team need to be reset um, every month it's a really good question because one month is not a natural, it's a given point. Um, in fact, uh, of course, once you develop something, um, 
we, we as a team always argue you have to make sure that um, you do not that you mitigate the risk of curve fitting. So if one month is just the best you can do based on the data set you're developing it, that's a really dangerous thing to do. So you basically should test if it also works with four week, uh, three weeks or five weeks um, or, or even much longer periods. And we realized when testing it that, that it's um, uh, the reality is probably somewhere between three and six weeks. That's all fine and doesn't have to be one month. But if you come from an uh, um, um, in asset manager perspective, and you're dealing with outside investors, generally you have incoming assets and outflowing assets on a monthly basis. So it naturally makes sense um, to um, allocate the portfolio on a monthly basis if it's not putting you in a much worse position in comparison to, let's say, five or six weeks. So um, when you when we tested that, we basically got what we refer to as a plateau result. Um, um, four weeks was pretty much good as three weeks or, 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 or um, five or six weeks. So we, we could, could be sure that we haven't just pinpointed and we're lucky and just found exactly the right spot for the data we developed the system on. But it's actually quite robust and stable because we are um, um, sitting on a plateau when actually doing it on a monthly basis. That's the reason. Sure. So you have all these different strategy elements in your portfolio that you can choose from. And we need to talk about how the selection process takes place, uh, I guess, as well. But tell me, before we go down that path, tell me a little bit about these small fellows, uh, these strategy elements. What, uh, what do they look like? What kind of um, strategies? Because trend following, you know, uh, uh, are many things to many people. Um, you mentioned moving averages, maybe there's some other things, but also I, I th I'm thinking in terms of time, um, you know, how short is the shortest uh, fellow and how long is the longest fellow, if, if we keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> I actually, we sometimes refer to them really as fellows because uh, sure. <laughs> this makes, makes things, I like, I like, the, like the graphic aspects of it. Um, sure. uh, they all use trend following. So it, it, you're perfectly right. You said there more. There's more than moving averages. We have range breakout as well, which probably is important. We did not come up with a new idea or concept how to look at trend following or sure. trend following actually means. We were actually not even um, bothered uh, to be a trend follower. We sure. we said we like we like these um, basic strategies and. Um, they have been well researched, and so we don't have to put much time on that. And we can actually focus on on um, how to actually define these um, fellows um, based on level two and three. And the idea was basically to have a real high number of variations. It's probably where our um, proprietary trading on the discretionary side comes into play, where we where we have all kinds of different ideas what can actually happen on a market and how um, one of the, how these fellows actually could and should react to it. But in, not in order to just pick the ones you think which are the best, you actually offer the um, um, entire process a high number of variations. You create a, a, a large, potentially tradable universe of strategy elements. And um, uh, at the same time, you spend um, um, a little bit more thought on how they actually select it. Yeah, that's probably um, an additional very important part sure. um, uh, if you think about um, optimization, particularly over-optimization as well. So, yeah, probably probably it, it makes sense to look, to look at the allocation process sure. at this point. 
which is a two-step process in our case where um, the universe is first defined in terms of which markets um, are actually um, potentially ready to, to trade for this particular month. Sure. And in the second step, um, all strategy elements in all, in all these um, um, markets be ready to, for trading for that particular month are basically competing um, for a spot to be picked. It reminds me sometimes of the movie Shrek, Do you know, right. where Donkey is jumping, he says, pick me, pick me. And that's, yeah. it's, it's a little bit like that. Yeah, yeah I think that's a good um, visual description. Yeah. <laughs> in the early days, basically what happened, if you take a strategy element, you can calculate the profitability of this strategy element based on um, what is called a forward walk optimization process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, you basically... Um, can create heat maps. Um, it gets really tricky when you have a higher number of parameters with um, even higher number of variations for these parameters because then the potential tradable universe becomes really multidimensional and it's it's not possible for a human being to get an understanding where profitability lies in that particular universe and where are areas which are not as profitable. But in the early days when this process was not automated, the portfolio manager sat down and actually systematically selected strategy elements based on on um, different criteria, among others, the profitability. And if you if you do it in a color color heat map, profitability is green, dark green, highly profitable, and um, red, um, highly loss making for that particular period um, you're, you're looking at. And then you build up the portfolio. And the portfolio manager naturally, as a human being, said, "Well, let's take take the green ones. They are highly profitable, though. Um, this is a really good choice." Unfortunately, sure. he somehow he somehow got it right. Uh, uh, this is referring also to 2010. Sure. But fortunately, in 2011, as I said earlier, we introduced the um, automated selection process, sure. and uh, then we realized quite fast that actually, if you do it in an uh, um, automated, computerized way. Uh, the allocation process actually picks a lot of red ones as well because uh, red ones uh, are maybe not um, profitable over that particular time window, but they're diversifying. And as um, an an important aspect, I said earlier, the entire allocation process is framed by really strict risk criteria. In our case, um, there are several risk um, um, criteria. One of them, probably the most dominant one, is downside volatility. So the portfolio is built up um, by selecting these little strategy elements step by step, putting together a portfolio, but it's constantly checking that the combination of strategy elements it's selecting is meeting the risk criteria. So it does not, um, it, there's no incident in, in the past based on the data set you're using, which has caused um, um, a downside volatility um, in excess of 10%. In a 1x version. Sure. And if, if there's something highly profitable combination, but it does not meet this risk criteria, it cannot be part of the portfolio. So the, the little guy can jump as high as he wants and says, pick me, pick me. If he, he might be highly profitable, but if he in combination with, with the others already being picked is causing uh, a risk incident, he will not be picked it's really, it's really sad thing for him because he himself is really profitable. So he will probably not understand why not being picked. But um, um, the allocation process is framed by these risk criteria, and um, it cannot be guided by just profitability. Sure. 
Sure. I'm glad it's all done sort of from an electronic point of view. Otherwise, there would be a lot of <laughs> disappointed fellows in your office every every month. That's um, correct. If they stand in line um, yes. uh, waiting to be picked, that would be um, a really sad picture because the majority of them are actually not picked. Yeah? Yeah. So um, they all have to go back home. Uh, one has to say they have a new chance next month. Sure. This goes for the strategy elements. And this also goes, I said earlier, it's a two-step process. In the first step, um, um, markets are selected. Um, I, I just, the other day, I explained it uh, to an investor how the market selection process is actually working. And I said, well, imagine all markets. We currently have 23 potentially tradable markets. And uh, maybe a short detour here. Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.